Hi, I'm Reg Harvick, and today I'm here with Dr. Maggie Hall, who is Assistant Professor of Strategic Business Analytics at WU Vienna. Uh, Maggie, welcome. You're not a typical mainframer as such, but uh, the, your role in the mainframe and legacy and uh, business computing ecosystem is, is tremendously important. Uh, so I'm really thankful for this opportunity to get to know you. Maybe if we can start by figuring out, you know, what, what's your background? How did you end up dealing with computing issues, given that I understand your, your degree isn't even in computing? Yeah, that's, that's my secret shame, I suppose. I am, I was originally trained in the social sciences. My bachelor's and master's were both in uh, political science, and I transitioned into technology for my PhD at Karlsruhe. And it was great because all of these things I'd always done as a social scientist, you could do with a couple of lines of code. And, you know, there went years of my life that I had spent, you know, hand coding things with just a couple of sentences functionally. From there, I moved to the University of Nebraska and I got a position in IT innovation. It's kind of looking around um, Omaha. I don't know if you know Omaha. It's this great environment because it's kind of alone. There's not a lot going out. Kansas City is probably the next biggest city. And from there, it's eight hours to Denver, eight hours to Chicago. So it's very unique and it's got a great business and technology ecosystem. And I was looking around, I have this, this sort of a hunch about online learning. It's that it doesn't do its job. We, we thought about online mm. systems or we turned, right? Even before COVID, we thought about, you know, online courses, they're going to be for the masses. We're going to democratize education. And the people who graduated from online courses, the people who are successful in online courses, uh, they were you and me functionally. They're people who are already successful at it, already well-educated, already had multiple advanced degrees. So they didn't do their job. So I had this, this sort of suspicion that we could probably do online education better and we could use it to help people who actually needed it. And for me, that was looking at adults experiencing homelessness. So I went around to the Omaha, again, a great community, and just sort of knocked on everyone's door who would let me in their door for about 15 minutes. And I asked them, what would it take for you to hire someone who's currently homeless into an IT role? What kind of mm. job skills do they need? What kind of background do they need? What would it take for you to overlook this problem? And it was uncanny. I actually mm. had... I. I talked to so many more people than I needed to because no one would, I, I didn't believe it. Almost to a person, they all said, we need the mainframe. We need specifically, we need mm. COBOL. Mm. There's no one teaching it in this region. We don't have enough people by spades. If you had somebody who uh, had sort of Python, one of the new languages that, you know, they're not isolated. And then COBOL, specifically COBOL then we'll hire them in a heartbeat. Ah, okay. And I've been working on that project ever since. So now I, I'm going to dig a little bit into your interesting background. Your accent suggests to me that you grew up in the United States. Is that a good guess? Yes. So I'm originally from the Pittsburgh region, sort of ah. northwest by about an hour. Kind of. There's this weird little spot between Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio, where they are all basically connected. And I'm from that. Oh, cool. I went there. Um, my, my kids and I went on a big, long North America wide road trip. 
And uh, we wanted to go to Steubenville Sunday morning, uh, Steubenville, Ohio. And so we looked for, uh, I was just using the hotels.com app and just grabbing the nearest hotel and somehow ended up in West Virginia, which boggled my mind because I didn't know West Virginia went that far west. It did, goes and, all the way up. It, yeah, it, uh, it was an interesting experience, which probably is, is uh, too much for this podcast, but, uh, but I, I have a sense, oh, let, let me just say that I've never been in a restaurant where the smoking, the non-smoking area was an area where you get stared at and asked to leave as quickly as possible and it takes up only a tiny fraction of the restaurant. It was, it was fascinating. <laughs> yes. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the Northern Appalachians. <laughs> so that said, um, uh, obviously, you, you moved from there to not just academia, but European academia. Yep, absolutely. I, I, I kind of took a circuitous path. I graduated from a bachelor's in Pittsburgh. So I call myself as someone from Pittsburgh, even though I'm from you know, the Appalachians. Uh, from there, I had this sort of international life. I was in Lebanon and Northern Africa and Germany wow. and just sort of tra traveled all around. It was great. I totally recommend it. If you're in your 20s and can manage to do it, do it. Even if you had to take out a little debt. I said the student loan debt. Oh, my God. But I settled at some point. I was living in Switzerland and working for the UN and decided that this was just not my life, I guess. It was, um, I wanted something a little bit more independent. I wanted something that I could own more and academia is always gonna be that route. Uh, got an offer from my professor, they call them the Dr. Fata here, the father of your doctorate. And I got an uh, offer from my Dr. Fata, Christoph Weinhardt and, Moved to Karlsruhe, which Karlsruhe Institute of Technology is one of the premier German, or German technical universities. Uh, couldn't have done any of this. We wouldn't even be having this conversation without that chance. Wow. Now, this whole time, though, I mean, you're, you're going up the social sciences route. Uh, and was it in Omaha or in Germany or somewhere else that you suddenly started making that connection to technology? My, I, my first love and my love has always been words and that mm. in the social sciences as well. And it carried through to the technology. I eventually did something with uh, sentiment analysis, NLP sort of stuff. Uh, I love words. I love understanding mm. the meanings behind words, understanding their uses. Uh, um, it, the word latency is the thing that I love mm. the most. I use it, it all the time when I'm talking to is, or teaching classes with students. So the latency, the way the computer scientists mean it and the way the rest of us mean it are not the same thing. And that it matters and the difference there. So because I love words, it was really easy to transition and really easy. It was fairly easy to transition into sort of an NLP space, sentiment analysis space and now, NLP is for our audience. That's natural language programming. Sorry, yes, not natural language processing. Processing, sorry. Yeah, and okay, so methodologically, I used NLP or sentiment analysis, or a little bit of both, and build out my skill set. I do also some work with image analysis, um, social mm -hmm. analytics. So I use social media data, and all of this, of course, none of this is a part of the mainframe. <laughs> It's, of course, that everything touches on the mainframe, and, and yeah, right now we all it. need to be lifting. 
Absolutely. More things randomly joined than you'd be uh, surprised, I guess. Or you wouldn't be surprised, but many would be. (laughs) Well, what's interesting here is that so far your journey has been an intellectual and academic journey. And uh, you and I are on the COBOL committee uh, where we just had a call recently and and we're talking about how the the COBOL and uh, business computing and mainframe world as as something of a distinction from the academic technology world, you know, that that is really important as, as we take a look at how to make sure it continues to be staffed. Um, and, and to see that you've got this, this wonderful uh, linguistic orientation and, and word orientation, which is something my, my family cares very much about. My brother, uh, Dr. James Harbick, actually writes a nearly daily column called Word Tasting Notes, just about the taste of words in the language. So, so I, I really get what you're talking about here. But it's interesting because the, your, your reason for your current activity comes from a completely different but related part of yourself, and that's your care for humanity, which is it's so important to me, you know, my, my focus on humanity, the mainframe. That, that at some point you took this, this connection from social sciences and language and all these, and then suddenly, bam, you saw an opportunity to bring it all together in humanity. How the, the heck did that all come together? If I'm going to be overly honest, I'm going to say it came out at the bottom of the third bottle of wine one day. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> I was, I was working. To. Yes, exactly. Sorry, anyone who's listening. <laughs> I I have a great colleague who's at Google, and he he shares this same sort of sense that all of this is just not doing what it's supposed to do. We shouldn't have some of the problems that we have if technology is really performant the way that we had originally intended. If you look at back in sort of the original foundational documents of creating the internet, it's supposed to be for education and it's supposed to equalize use and it's supposed to be this great tool and it's not in that it's not fair it's not fair because mm. we we all put this in together but we're not getting equal mm. use out of it so he shares this really deep conviction it's marcus Kreuzer. he's over in uh, california and at the bottom of way too many bottles of wine, we took a piece of plastic and stuck it to my wall and started mapping out the sort of how can we fix this problem using education as our cornerstones. So that's wow. where that's really how it started. That's the overly honest version, though. I like it. That's, that's great. It's so human once again. Uh, so. Uh, as, as sort of a person who is really carrying, you know, carrying this burden on your shoulders just by choice, as, as somebody's seeing the need that is out there, and everybody else is too busy earning an income to to realize that you know the the well is going to run dry if they don't prime it. Um, you know, it, I, somehow having had this opportunity to see the, the need, I, I gather in some ways in North America, but clearly you're you're working on it, literally working on it, but in Austria now. Um, how did that all happen? I, I have my Austrian position. I, I was at University of Nebraska and my husband is German actually. And yeah. the pandemic was very, very hard on having family all over the world and everybody's under different lockdown constraints. And it became sort of a family imperative to try to get back to Europe, maybe a little bit closer to my in-laws. So that's really the, there's nothing magic there. I'm still working on the project. I'm still pushing through this conversation. Our, our major site is Omaha. That's where the project mm-hmm. is based for now, but we're looking always at ways to expand it into different cities. Uh, Dallas is going to be probably a big site for us. Uh, we'd like to go into California because the problem is so acute there. Mm-hmm. And of course, bringing it back here to me and the EU. Now, 
I'm going to guess that the homelessness experience in the EU is, uh, although, I mean, you know, people are still basically people, but there's probably different nuances to it. Um, you know, one of which is that you guys are a lot further north than most people realize. As somebody who's based in Canada, you know, I'm, I'm startled by the fact that so much of the EU is actually parallel to Canada, not the United States. You know, and so you have the same daylight and, and sometimes some of the same weather, um, although we're all kind of cooking right now. But um, I, I'm curious about, you know, as you talk about these different geographies, both within the United States and then external to the U.S., how the, the homeless situation and the ability to incorporate that into the future of IT uh, vary but have things in common? I would say the, the more interesting case here is how do we use the same systems that we're working on with homeless adults in the States and use it for current social problems in Europe. And for us, that's going to much be much more be things like linguistic minorities, people who come in from, let's say, Eastern Europe and then move to any of the Western European EU countries. Mm. That's going to be asylum seekers um, that you, you saw just a few years ago where we had these just million people, trains of walking migrants coming out of uh, mm. Afghanistan and Pakistan, for example, and integrating these people who are just very much on the margins of society this, with that same mechanism, though. So take these critical undertaught languages that run everything we do and make sure that they have the skills that they need to be so well-trained that nothing else matters. Hmm. Cool. I, I, I love the faith in, in uh, humanity and individual humans given an opportunity that you have here, uh, and, and I support it. Um, that said, uh, do you have any practical examples of, of what particularly works well in creating that connection uh, in any of your locations yet? Oh, that, that's such a big question. I almost need to have, have you shrink it down. So are you talking yeah, at, sure. at the curricula level or are you talking about it at the partnership level? There are so many elements. Um, let's, let's talk about the, the goal, which is to have um, you know, the mainframe staffed up. As, as I told you in our previous conversation before this interview, back in 2004, I wrote a white paper about the need to get a new generation on the mainframe. And still, you know, 18 years later, it's people like yourselves who hadn't read that white paper, but just saw a need actually doing something about it, you know, the, the, the people in charge of the various organizations with mainframes and running COBOL, you know, um, are too busy on day-to-day -day business to, to really look up, you know, above the horizon. Uh, and, and so, you know, as we take a look at the fact that we really desperately need a new generation on the mainframe, the, the average mainframer's age, you know, would still be going up if it were for the fact that there's now a few new mainframers. But uh, if you can think of some specific examples, maybe a, a, a bunch of different unrelated examples where, where people now have jobs in the organizations that run the world economy, writing COBOL or doing systems work on the mainframe or stuff like that, that is a direct outgrowth of, of your creating that on-ramp from being homeless. Okay, perfect. Uh, we are partnered with uh, a selection of organizations and mainframe houses all over the Midwest functionally, a couple, a couple organizations in the South as well. And what we do with our program is we talk to these partners and hi, we're looking for new partners, everyone who's listening. We talk to these partners and we ask them to give to us something that's wrong with their organization. So buggy code or your QA tasks or something that for them represents a common thing that their staff would be dealing with, their IT staff would be dealing with either in the mainframe or in app development. 
And we take these problems and actually make or have our learners create solutions for them. So it's like a portfolio of experience that the learners have and give these solutions back to our partners. And from that, it creates an assessment center function. You have shown what it is that you would do if you were attacking this buggy code or if you were doing some sort of testing. And that gives them the, the hiring manager and the HR management sort of a baseline level of being able to understand. So that's sort of our, our magic trick there. It's really heavily aligned on partnerships. In terms of hiring, we see a lot of interest in, in testing, QA and testing. Um, I'm not sure why that artifact is happening, but we get a lot of interest in our learners, maybe because of the degree we mismatch, right? Getting people in the door when they don't have a degree or they don't have a fitting degree can be tough. So we do get a lot of, of, of orientation towards QA and testing. Interesting. Like to change uh, no, I mean, that, be, but. Yeah, but testing is a really important part of it. And you know, I, I have to say testing does require a, a set of perspectives that um, that are non-conformant with the perspectives of those writing the products. You know, I, I always figure that a CIO or who'd never actually worked with the technology or a two-year-old might be among the best testers in terms of just discovering stuff, you know, uh, especially because, I mean, we, we have so codified all the standard tests using automated testing that it's the ability to, to discover um, unexpected uh, things that, that are such a big part of that. And so it's obviously somebody with an unexpected background can do that. But it's also a foot in the door, of course, not only for them, but for other folks who are homeless. Now, um, I assume that there is a very substantial, not just educational, but the, you know, certificate or other kind of qualification granting part of what you're doing so that employers can have that comfort that they're dealing with somebody who really does have the smarts and the, the dedication. Uh, how does that all map? And we are actually in some ways the credential problem uh, that we grant the credential in, we create our curricular materials on the basis of sort of the standard learning materials. So the same thing that you or I would look at if we were trying to upscale ourselves on either Python or on COBOL or JCL, right? We take those same cur curricular materials and we work them through with much more, um, how do I say this without being mean to computer scientists with, <laughs> with language that is much less exclusionary? Um, mm. We pay a lot more attention to context clues, to readability, things that aren't necessarily standard in your intro level CS 101 class, say it like that. Uh, so we use examples that work for their daily lives, but also we do so in language that's not exclusionary. But it's the same learning material that mm -hmm. everybody is doing whenever they're doing their entry level, learn how to program, learn the concepts of computer science courses. And then they work through solutions. Uh, we actually pay our learners for providing oh, solutions. So they learn, mm -hmm. they get to do the materials. And every time we give them a quiz, every time that they submit a little bit of code, we give them a little bit of money, sort of like an apprenticeship mm -hmm. or almost like a crowd worker, maybe is the right term. And they get a little bit of financial support. Plus, you know, you're learning at a skill. You can't argue anything against IT being a skill. And eventually, this is where we were talking about the challenges earlier, everything they do 
builds up into a skills-based portfolio because I, what I can't do is give some mom who lost her kids because she's an addict and she's in a recovery program. I can't give her a four-year computer science degree in six months. It's beyond me, right? It's beyond anybody. But what I can do is say, okay, I can guarantee that this person has learned the skills. And the way that I can do that is show you what they've achieved. So we act as the clearinghouse there for the credential granter, but everything we're looking at is really showing ability as opposed to proving aptitude. You know, you've touched on a number of really important things to, to me. Uh, and, you know, the in some ways, what they all come down to is the non-academic perspective. Uh, A, because you're talking about skills, not knowledge. You know, And this is something I've found consistently in my computing career. If I want to teach somebody something about computing, I can't sit at a chalkboard or even at a screen. I need to sit them down at the keyboard and get that muscle memory. That's a skill thing. That's not a knowledge thing. Um, but then also choosing language that speaks to them. You know, uh, As somebody who comes from an academic family, I like to joke that my natural language is... Uh, um, sesquipedalian pedantic English, you know, uh, which is is great if you want to speak to university people, but in the real world where business people are trying to get business results, you know, that kind of language excludes you, even as it's language that's intended sometimes to exclude people who aren't academics. Um, and I think this is one of the big issues is in the world of business IT, you know, which especially includes both COBOL and the mainframe, that we don't need highfalutin academics. We need hardworking, smart people who can just take stuff and make it work and don't need to be using $5 words. Uh, and so I'm really you know, enthusiastic about your, your discussion of, of using a language that speaks to the, the actual uh, workforce that you want, not to some academic whose approval you when using big words. Um, maybe if you could just give a few additional insights into the cultural and linguistic approach to, to getting real people involved. Sure. Uh, so, Reg, what is a variable? Hmm. Oh, there's a good thing. Because I, as a computer person, of course, I'm going to say, well, a variable is a memory location where we keep uh, data that may be subject to change and you refer to it in your program. But I'm going to guess you've got a different definition. So what is uh, it, You lost me. It's subject to changing. And I'm someone who deals <laughs> with variables a lot. <laughs> you can explain a variable. You could also give, let's say, an analogy of a variable. Um, a variable, for example could be the difference between a check and a unit of currency, a dollar, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Both of them have some sort of representation of value, but neither of them are the value themselves. They're just a representation of it. So if I write you out a check for a dollar, if I give you a dollar, right, we have some sort of representation of that value. And a variable does the same thing. It represents some sort of value and you can have it in different formats, but also you can expand, shrink, contrast, anything that you need to do. And those come in different types of measurable units. We can talk about those measurable units in a longer conversation that's not on the podcast, but this is, this is that sort of just perspective change that you need to have. We can, we can always use the real definition or we can take just really basic examples that come from people's lives. 
it's an algorithm. Well, do you look out of the window in the morning to check to see if it's going to rain? And if it's going to rain, do you think about taking an umbrella with you? Right? These sort of patterns that are ingrained in you, those are really just your brain's algorithms. So now let's break down what it is that these indicators are that you have something that's in a pattern moving forward like that. Cool. So mapping it back to a, a more realistic experience versus just pure concept, which, you know, is so funny because that's really, you know, as, as our colleague Misty, Misty Decker likes to point out, you know, that the, the people, the business technology was made for are business people, you know, secretaries, uh, accountants, um, administrators, you know, people who are doing a job to get results, not people who are trying to show off their knowledge. Um, and so to, to use real human concepts to understand this stuff, is, I think something that you can use for everybody else having developed it for, for people who really function at that level to discover we actually all function at that level. You know, uh, that's when we're actually being functional versus you know, kind of showing off our knowledge or something of that nature. Um, and so I, I'm really optimistic that a lot of these findings that you're making will map to a whole lot of other people. Um, that said, uh, how do you, if, if you were to put yourself in a position of somebody who could not merely predict, but, but predict, dictate the future of uh, Business computing, large enterprise business computing, uh, including organizations that have COBOL, that have mainframes, what would that future look like and what would you have done or be participated in to make it happen? My, my sad perspective is I think it's going to continue the way that it is going right now. There are oh. some really great efforts out there and open mainframe project among them of sort of saying, hey, look, we're walking into a burning fire. This is a slow moving crisis, but like many slow moving crises, we only really deal with it when it's a little bit almost too late. And mainframe has proven itself over and over and over again to be similar to a slow moving crisis. And uh, the, the example that all of these mainframe has had to come back from retirement at the beginning of COVID mm. because nobody in the US government know, knew how to reprogram the Social Security Administration so that people could get their stimulus checks. That's shocking and it should be terrifying to all of us. And yet we've made zero changes, right? The mainframe sector, it's just showing this over and over and over again, slow moving crisis, we're gonna deal with it when it's way too late. <laughs> What I would like to have an answer is that there are ways for some of these problems that we see. So integrating people at the margins of the digital era on the side of the digital divide, we can, we can find a better way to almost leverage the two crises off of each other, mm. right? And we have two problems, like but if we pull them together, we can find a solution. I don't need these people who are in my program to take calculus, right? I, that's, a, that's one of the classic conversations in computer science education right now. How much math do they need? And calculus is just one of those hills we all like to die on. None of these people need calculus if, if they're getting hired to do quality assurance level one. I'm sorry, they don't. All right. So let's meet people where they're at, meet the technology need where it's at. It turns out that in some cases you can really take two problems and it creates a better solution. And that's what I would love to see. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm a pessimist in everything that I said first round. That's, that's awesome. 
Maggie, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Is there anything else you'd want to share with us? Just I don't, don't want to miss the opportunity to hear it. Uh, we are always looking for people to partner with. We are always looking for people to interview, to understand better what the, the needs are in the entire mainframe talent pipeline, not just on the COBOL programming. So reach mm. out. We're all over the, we have a partner in Dallas. We have a partner in Omaha. We have got myself. Uh, and thank you, Reg. This is just such an opportunity. Thank you. Uh, maybe one last thought then is, can I get a, an email address or some other way people can reach you and contact you if they have questions or ideas? Or Absolutely. Do you want me to say it out or do you want to uh, sure. yeah, spell it out and it I'll in? put it in the okay. transcript? Okay. So M-A-R-G-E-R-E-T dot H-A-L-L at B-U or sorry, W-U dot A-C dot A-T. Awesome. Uh, okay. And, and uh, so let me uh, say I should have typed that. So uh, Margaret dot Paul at uh w v yeah w u w, w, w dot c i'll type it out for you i'm so sorry i keep saying it in the german way and they say b for w uh, or, yeah. ah this is my fault I, I know the feeling once you know one or two languages the letters like y and w start to get really confusing Oh, and it, oh, cool. I don't know if you've seen a European keyboard, but they switched the Z and the Y too. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know touch typing and driving that way. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. I really appreciate this. Um, I'll be back with another podcast next month. But in the meantime, check out the other content on Tech Channel. You can also subscribe to their weekly newsletters, webinars, ebooks, solutions, directory, and more on the subscription page. I'm Reg Harbeck. <laughs>